Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. If you know anything about 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you've been reading your Bible in preparation for the things we are talking about on Sundays, you know that we are going to be looking at a passage today that is controversial, to say the least. We will essentially, like I said, cover all of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 today because we already read about communion, but we'll, we'll say some more things about that too. The first half of the chapter, though, is about head coverings for women. Woohoo! Heard all these, uh, I heard a great report on uh, Pastor Mike's uh, message while we were uh, up in Wisconsin last week and, uh, you know, heard uh, several people texted me or uh, sent me a message saying that Pastor Mike just did great, and my tie is just a disaster today, you're going to have to forgive me, and uh, preached, uh, what, about renewing the mind, right, and uh, good, meaty, practical stuff, so I know you're eager to dive this morning into the topic of head coverings for women, and I'm sure you're just uh, twitching, can't wait to get out and apply this stuff in the marketplace, (laughs) my wife said today, as we're getting ready. Uh, that she kind of sometimes wishes we were done going through the Bible so we'd get on some topical stuff. And uh, Dad has said similar things to me, not because they hate the Bible. Uh, But, I mean, I don't know. I don't think they hate the Bible. But, no, I get it. And yet, if you pay attention, there really is a topical thing. But I get it. We we want, uh, you know, there's value in marriage series, uh, financial series. uh, And uh, and I'm not going to especially the more details we find ourselves getting, getting in. You know, here we are, one chapter today. It's never my intention to spend that long, but this is a passage that needs some attention. So anyway, I'm never going to say we're not going to interrupt this for, for one of these things, uh, but there is. I always, always endeavor to hear the Lord about an application, and I believe I've got it for today. I think it's a, an important one. But let me, let me say, uh, you know, uh, all joking aside, when I say we're going to talk about head coverings today, uh, at least mentally, some of you are probably rolling your eyes, thinking how big a deal can this possibly be in 2018. Uh, but there's half a chapter devoted to this. And it has to mean something, right? Uh, and let me start by saying that to treat this passage with justice, it really needs to be looked at alongside several other passages about women in ministry, the, uh, women in marriage, the different roles of men and women at large. And I will do that. I'll do a series about that or a teaching about that right after I finish Revelation. That's kind of a joke there, meaning that's not something I'm really eager to dive into, but, but we will. We'll talk about it, and, and we'll talk about it a little bit today. But we'll also encounter two or three other significant passages here over the next weeks and months. Uh, but controversial and difficult are not the same thing as impossible, and it's certainly not irrelevant, as I think you'll see. Let's go ahead and read the passage beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And verse 1 says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And let's stop there. I'm not going to stop after every verse. I'm going to read this whole passage. I just want to say that first verse, in my opinion, really belongs at the end of chapter 10. Don't know if I mentioned that last week, but we just finished reading uh, where uh, Paul talks about becoming, uh, oh, uh, not abusing your liberty, and uh, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all the glory of God. uh, It's the Same thing he addressed in Romans. He's already sort of touched on in Corinthians. Now he's talking about living your life for others. Yes, you have liberty, 
but don't use it as a stumbling block for anybody else. Respect one another. Your goal is always to bless the other person, this idea of mutual submission, and then wraps that up by saying, I believe, imitate me just as I imitate Jesus Christ. And we have, as the example, we talked about this on a Wednesday night not long ago, the example of Jesus, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you'll become a servant of all. And Paul's saying, I'm imitating him in doing this. Now you imitate me. I also, just kind of as an aside, I always like to contrast that with what he told the Ephesians. The Ephesians, he told, uh, be imitators of God. The, the Ephesians, were, as a group, were a more mature bunch of believers. The Corinthians, as I think we're beginning to discover, were a little on the carnal side. And he says to them, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'm going to give you a flesh and blood picture because I'm not sure you're at the spiritual maturity level to imitate God himself. I I always kind of see that as something that we ought to make our aim to be able to say like Paul did. If you want to imitate Christ, you'll do a pretty good job if you just imitate me. It's a pretty bold statement, right? Okay, but now let's move on, beginning in verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so, man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. All right, is that clear? Let's move on to verse 17 then and talk about the Lord's table. Listen, if you have ever been curious about this, and I don't know how many of you have, this is the kind of thing that, to be really honest, most people, when they they dedicate themselves to reading through the Bible, that's something that I would urge everybody to do. It's something you ought to do, I, I think, every year. You can get through it. 10, 15 minutes a day, you'll get through the Bible in a year. Uh, If you like to spend more time reading, you can get through a couple different versions in a year or three or four different versions. It doesn't take that big an investment of time. But reading it and understanding everything are, are two different things. It's hard to study the Bible in depth all the way through in a year, but you can certainly read it. And this is one of those passages that I think a lot of people, they read it and they go, wow, don't know what that has to do with anything. Let's move on. And so we read the rest of, uh, of Corinthians. And, and every now and then we come across a passage like that. And say, I just don't know what to do with that. Head coverings. But if you've ever gotten to this passage and, and really thought, now what does that mean? You know, we live in a good time when it's easy to find out what a lot of other people think that means. 
you know, click of a mouse, head coverings. Just type in head coverings for women. Boom, a wealth of commentary. And guess what? They don't all agree. You would think that a lot of the argument or a lot of the discussion or disagreement would be about our head coverings for today. You know what? We can't even decide what head coverings are. There are, on one end of this scale, it's understood as a full-faced veil, as was often worn by women in the Middle East in Jewish society and non-Jewish society. Uh, And on the other end, it's simply talking about hair. And there's actually a pretty strong case to be made for the hair being the covering. The problem is uh, it doesn't quite fit with everything here. For example, as we just read in verse 6, it says, If a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. Well, if the hair is the covering, if she's not covered, that means the hair's gone already, right? So that, that kind of is tricky. It might, it might indicate we're talking about something else. Uh, and, and most people describe the head covering, if they're, not, if they're saying it's not the hair, then it was something that was draped over the head that hung down on both sides. And, the, and that's the simple explanation is a woman was supposed to wear this, the man wasn't. So let's get something kind of out of the way look at the middle part of this because I think this is something that I think we really need to uh, understand as, as what I see as kind of the center of this. In, in uh, verse 8 it says, for man is not from woman, but woman from man. Meaning he's talking about, he's pointing to the created order. God created Adam and then he put Adam into a deep sleep, took one of Adam's ribs, made, fashioned the rib into a woman. Uh, for Adam, and then closed the place up in his rib. And so that's what he means. Woman came out of man, verse 8, woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this reason, woman ought to wear, the woman ought to wear, have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man comes through woman, but all things are from God. First off, Paul's argument here, again, goes back to creation itself. This is important because one of the first things people want to do with this passage is simply write it off as, that's a cultural tradition. This is something that applied to first century Corinth, but it does not apply to 21st century America. All right? Uh, Now, we are going to find out that partially this is true, uh, that this particular expression of honor and authority were a cultural thing in Corinth in the first century. But the principles are first principles, and they are timeless. Uh, Paul refers to the creation event when he's making his, his argument here. So before we go any further, let's make this part really, really clear. Paul, what Paul is not saying, Paul is not saying that men are superior to women. This is not in any way a case for making women second-class citizens, second-class Christians or church members, okay? Verse 11 and 12, nail that down. This is not about, you know, men and women are interdependent. They are not whole before God. They, 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 they are, there is no male and female in Christ, right? Paul's the one who tells us that. We are equal. Ravi Zacharias puts it this way, uh, has several times. He says uh, the clear biblical teaching on male and female is that there is equality of essence, but a difference in roles. And uh, Paul starts his teaching here by pointing out that that same equality and difference exists in the Godhead. 
Jesus is God the Son, not just the Son of God. This is the doctrine of the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Who's the strongest? Who's the most God? They're co-equal, right? In terms of their nature and their essence, they are all equally God. And yet, Jesus is submitted to the Father. He is not inferior to the Father, but he's submitted. They are perfectly in agreement, perfectly equal, perfectly one. But the head of Christ is God the Father. There is order. Again, the Son is not less than the Father, but the Son is submitted to the Father. Woman is not less than man, but women are to submit to their husbands. And let me quickly acknowledge that this passage deals with women in general. So we have to ask the question, what do we do about that? If we want to make a separate teaching on wives submitting to their husbands, what do we do with the single women in this passage? Uh, And ideally, the same thing exists, and and the, the single woman would be under the headship of her father. We're dealing now, again, 21st century Western society with a strong emphasis on independence, And uh, so we kind of have to focus on husbands and wives here. I think, again, ideally and biblically, uh, every woman ought to have as a covering, again, not as a boss, not as a master-slave relationship, but as an authority covering, ought to have a man in her life to serve that role. And this is just a a simple recognition of the order of creation. We're going to still rub some people the wrong way, but we'll come back to it. Hang on. What was going on here... uh, Well, let me look at this, except we talk about this, it's it's mostly focusing on husbands and wives maybe, except that at the core of this whole passage, there's a cultural issue that directly violates the creation principle. When Paul is talking, for instance, about the short hair and the long hair, short hair for men, long hair for women, well, my goodness, there are studies you can find where the the cultural norms, you know, he says, doesn't nature itself teach you that? Well, that really does depend on where and when you live. Throughout history, long hair has been normal for men. Long hair has not been normal for men. Short hair for women, long hair for women. It varies according to geography and time. In Paul's time, apparently, the norm for a manly haircut was short hair. And a feminine haircut was long hair. All right? So what's going on here is that women, certain women... All right, do you remember chapter or so ago? We just talked about it, as a matter of fact. Paul made a strong case, as he did in Romans. Look, you've got liberty, thanks to Jesus Christ. This isn't about legalism. This isn't about checking things off on a list. You, can do, you have freedom to do these things. But you need to, as believers who are in a relationship of mutual submission and preferring one another, before you decide to exercise your liberty, certainly before you decide to flaunt your liberty, you are obligated to consider how your exercise of that liberty is going to affect your neighbor, your brother and sister in the Lord. All things are permissible, but not all things are profitable. I'm submitting myself to you says Paul, and I believe I'm doing this in imitation of Christ. Now, what was going on here, one of the cultural issues of the day, you know how the, uh, maybe the most popular saying, most popular fragment of Scripture in our society is, is probably don't judge, 
right? The, the most popular fragment of uh, Scripture in the Corinthian church was probably, all things are lawful for me. All right? They can do anything. And one of the cultural issues of the day was the blurring of lines between the sexes. A lot of it had to do with the worship. This was a very strong cultural thing in, in Corinth and in the surrounding area, by the way, in the, uh, the Greek-slash-Roman world, was the worship of a god named uh, Dionysus. He was kind of low down on the scale of the Greek, uh, the Olympian gods, okay? Uh, he was also known as Bacchus. Maybe you're more familiar with that name. It's the god of wine, the god of drunkenness, the god of revelry. He was the party god, okay? And uh, many ancient depictions of Bacchus or Dionysus have him uh, as sort of a gender-fluid individual. He was known in some cultures as a sham man because of his feminine qualities, his effeminate features. And uh, those who worshipped him in Paul's day would often celebrate by cross-dressing Okay, the men would grow long hair or wear a veil that was associated with women's wear and the women would cut their hair short in the style of a man. All in the name of partying for Dionysus. And these things sort of leaked out into culture at large. Kind of like there are things in our culture that used to mean something connected to something bigger and now they've just become disconnected from that and they're part of our culture. So some Corinthians, some Corinthian Christians were likely still flirting with these ideas. They were an ingrained part of the culture and they converted to Christian worship, but they still enjoyed the parties and the feast associated with Dionysus. And so they incorporated some of these practices into Christian worship. Well, I can do all things. All things are permissible for me. And so the woman would say, I'm going to go uncovered. I'm going to cut my hair. I'm going to dress like a man. I'm going to look like a man. And Paul is simply laying down the truth that man was created as man and woman was created as woman. And if you come into the assembly and actually participate in the service, he's talking about praying and prophesying, while failing to acknowledge this essential difference, then you should be not just ashamed, you should be shamed. Men... God has a particular role for you as a man, so embrace your masculinity. Women, God has a particular role for you as a woman, so embrace your femininity. I think, I think, this is at the core of what Paul is talking about when he writes about the head covering. Again, this kind of submission is referenced here, uh, it's to be modeled on Christ, uh, submission to God. Men, and this, is, and this is where this whole thing breaks down, unfortunately. Women hear this idea that, and, and they bristle. Uh, it's something so patriarchal about this Christian teaching that women are supposed to submit to men. And the reason that is such a distasteful thing in the minds of many women is because the men aren't submitted to Christ. And even worse, some, there are some men who refuse to truly submit to Christ, but boy, they really stand on the truth that their wives need to submit to them. And what are they doing? They're lording it over them. How did that ever come about? Was that ever predicted that that would happen? Back in the garden, wasn't it? Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall lord it over you. 
And we see both of this thing. We see women desiring the role of a man and a man reveling in the fact that he's got this position and both of them are looking at it wrong. A man should glory and rejoice in the fact that he has an authority to look to, a covering in Jesus Christ the Lord and willingly submit himself to Jesus Christ and then with all sobriety embrace the role as a covering, a protection, an authority over the woman that God has given him. Men, if we would submit to Christ like that, our women would have no trouble submitting to us. It's true. There's that interesting verse there in verse 10 though when it says for this reason the woman ought to have a symbol of authority over on her head because of the angels what does that mean <laughs> i don't know let's move on no but i, I it could mean a couple of things number one the bible talks about uh, we, some without knowing have entertained angels we have to remember that there are angels i believe in this room right now probably up in the balcony they're watching they're observing the service they're kind of they listen to our prayers They are ministering spirits. Angels know something about authority, don't they? Also, tied to that, is there were angels who should have known better, who violated the natural order of things. And what happened? A third of them were cast down. A third of them are what we now call demons. The demonic hosts used to be angels cast out of the presence of God because they failed, they violated the supernatural order of things. And we don't want to be guilty of the same thing. There is an order that God has uh, laid down, and we need to embrace it. We need to submit to it. In verse 16 there, it says, uh, this one's another one that's interpreted, interpreted a couple of different ways. When it says, if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Some say that what Paul's saying here is, well, if you want to argue about it, it's really not that big a deal after all. But that doesn't make sense considering everything he just wrote about it. It's obviously a pretty big deal to Paul. I think all he's saying, I think a better translation is, we have no other custom. You're trying to be contentious here, but I'm telling you, it's this way in all the churches. This is the only way we do it. Women are women and men are men. And at the time, I believe probably, I think the hair thing, again, is a strong argument, but I think there probably was a type of covering. There are are Christians, I'm talking modern Christians, who still embrace this. Now, if you go back over the last hundred years or so, you know, it, it used to be that women would always wear hats to church. Instead of a veil or something like that, they'd wear a hat. And then what happened? They'd started wearing fancier and fancier hats. Instead of a simple head covering, they'd come in with fruit bowls on their head and uh, jewels and things shooting out. Who had the fanciest hat? Which is absolutely a violation of the principle of the thing. And you look at everything else uh, that is written about women and modesty in the church, And we tend to think the word modestly simply means keeping your skin covered, but it doesn't just mean that. It means not ostentatious, not wearing something that's going to draw a lot of attention to you. And I believe it covers jewelry. I believe it covers your clothing. I believe it covers your hairstyle, your makeup, everything. Okay? Uh, And so the hat, instead of, again, becoming a symbol of humility and authority, became a symbol of uh, flashiness and wealth and things like that. And so the hat sort of, and then again, fashions change, and they don't wear hats to church. I remember reading, though, uh, uh, the great theologian, R.C. Sproul, uh, just passed, didn't he, not too long ago? And he wrote a, uh, a, a book uh, of just answers to questions. He'd received hundreds of questions over the years, and he picked out the most often asked questions and wrote answers to them. Some answers were better than others. But when he got to the thing about head coverings, he said, uh, he talked about how people over the years, 
believed that uh, women should cover their heads in church. Uh, it was very common that most women coming into a particular church would, would have some sort of either a veil or a cloth or a hat on. He says, if you walk into my church today on an, any given Sunday, you will find exactly two women uh, wearing any kind of head covering. And one is this little old lady who's been there for 50-some years, uh, and the other one is my wife because we are convinced that the biblical mandate is still in effect. So this is not something that is just for, uh, you know, and, and this was a, a modern man in modern society. Uh, do I happen to agree with him? Where, where, this, this is what you really want to know, right? What does your pastor think is the practice for today? And the answer is the youth group is selling head coverings today in the lobby as a fundraiser. No, 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 no. The bottom line as I see it, and this is as I see it. This is one of my moments where I slip into Paul mode and say, I have no word from the Lord on this other than the word we have here. The bottom line as I see it is that head coverings, whether veils or hats, are not necessary. What is being stressed here is that what you do wear, however much it might fit the cultural norms, should not cause anyone to question whether those are man's clothes or woman's clothes. And again, that includes things like your hairstyle, your makeup, and jewelry. This is important because there is a divine order, and that divine order, in that divine order, there is a clear difference between man and woman. Fair enough? And we can talk more about that. If, if there's some specific angle to this that you feel I'm not covering well enough, I'm not trying to dodge it. I may be just not thinking about it from the same uh, angle you are. Shoot me an email, all right? Ask me a question. Don't ask me in the, in the tunnel on the way out. I'll forget, and it holds up the line. But shoot me something. Write, write it down or send me an email. Now, uh, uh, really then, keeping in mind everything he said already, uh, it's along the same line he begins to... Oh, let me ask you this, first of all. This idea, going back to what he's saying about head coverings and, and uh, male and female, is this an issue today, this blurring of the lines sexually? Dear Lord, could anything be more relevant in our culture? I don't think so. This, and this is a bi- and it's a big deal. It's a biblical deal. The, I, I mean, it's not just a matter. You understand, we've moved way beyond, hey, people can't help who they're attracted to. Don't condemn a woman for being attracted to a woman or a man attracted to a man. That's not it anymore. It's let's don't force this, these archaic ideas of male and female on children until they're old enough to decide what they want to be. It's nuts. And there are good, thank God, there are good, educated people, not even believers, who are saying it's nuts. We know better than that. Nature itself teaches that's, that there's a difference. But this is, the, this is exactly the agenda that's being pushed. It is, guess what? There's nothing new under the sun. The same thing was happening back here in Paul's day. and We have this precious passage on head coverings, of all things, to help us deal with it. All right, so it's really in the same line that he then continues. He switches from that to talking about conduct at the Lord's Supper. And let's read before and after what we read this morning, beginning in verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. What he's saying here is it's really too bad to hear about this. Some of you are contentious. There are factions. And you know what? Hate to believe it, but I do. And the one good thing that's going to come out of this is as 
some of these divisions are going to simply be dividing the godly from the ungodly. Some of you are truly godly. And since several of you are not, there have to be factions because there's no fellowship between light and darkness. All right? So the godly are going to rise to the top. Therefore, verse 20, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Once again, we talked about this in, uh, prep, uh, in preparation for communion some, a number of months ago. Uh, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but this is it. They're bringing in these cultural practices. Again, a lot of this Bacchus feast type uh, mindset into the church. Hey, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. Woohoo! here's the bread, here's the wine. And they're stuffing themselves. People would bring their own bread, bring their own wine. And those who had plenty would stuff themselves and get drunk. And those who had nothing would sit there and uh, go thirsty and hungry. And that's why Paul is setting out this order. No, no, no. This isn't a feast. You've got houses to eat, and you can have all your bread and all your wine at home. You come in here, it is to celebrate an ordinance. And, then, and that's right then he goes from what we just read to what we read this morning. For that which I delivered to you, I also received from the Lord. Here's what it was, that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And he lays this thing out. This is the ordinance we celebrate. And so we read that part, and then we come down to verse 27, which is right after that. Well, let's read verse 26 to bridge the gap. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. And that sleep is dead, okay? Many of you are dead. So, uh, verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Now, once again, let's remember when we come together for this, it's not, it's not about the eating and drinking. By the way, it's that verse in there. Uh, I'm not legalistic about this. I've been in churches, especially churches where they take communion every week, where the elements are passed and you eat. You know, here comes the bread. You take your bread, you eat it, you pass it down, take the juice, you eat it. Uh, Everybody does it as it goes by. We're, We're here where it says wait for one another. We do that. We take it together. I think it's a more beautiful thing. I think it flows more nicely for us all to take the bread together, take the cup together. But it's not just pure legalism. I think the, the, the core there is let's make sure there's enough for everybody. So as long as you're making it, it's, it's nothing wrong with doing it the way some churches do. We take it together, uh, and there's our scriptural basis for that. But when he's talking about the judgment, eating and drinking judgment to yourself, judge yourself so that you don't be judged, eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, you need to understand, and I think most of you do, but we've got to say this. Uh, It is not how worthy you are as a person. Are you worthy to drink of the cup, eat of the bread, uh, in terms of being qualified to receive communion? That is based entirely on the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. All right? You can't 
It's not a matter, am I worthy to take? None of us are worthy in our own, okay? But if we've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, he's made us worthy. But there is an unworthy manner about the way we can approach the Lord's table that can condemn us, all right? What do you think about when you get ready to receive? How much value do you place on remembering the Lord's broken body and the Lord's shed blood? Because I believe a proper understanding of those things can save your life. You understand? This is what Paul said. Some of you are approaching this wrong. And because you're approaching it wrong, some of you are dying. I think that we can safely extrapolate, uh, you know, when he says that some of you are asleep, uh, that there are things over which we need victory in our lives. Many of us do. And when I take that cup, I'm reminded of the Lord's death. And when I think about the Lord's death, I cannot help but remember his resurrection. And I am persuaded that the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in me and can certainly overcome a bad habit, a disease, lack, and any attack of the enemy. When I approach the Lord's table, the worthy manner in which I receive it is to simply hold that bread and hold that cup in high enough regard to make a difference in my life. This isn't just something the Lord did. It means something for me today. Yes, his body was broken, but that means I can be healed. Yes, his blood was shed. His life was poured out, but he was raised, and it means I will be raised with him. New life dwells in me. If I approach the table as a victim, acknowledging his sacrifice but forgetting his victory over the grave, I may well remain a victim until the resurrection of my own body. You understand it beats hell, but it's not the life we were created for. It's not the life we were redeemed for. Praise and worship team, come on up here as I wrap this up. You can be saved. And you can come to the table and say, oh, Lord, thank you for your body being broken. Thank you for your blood being shed. I'm just a poor old sinner. I just, I am barely worthy to partake of this table. But I know you've saved me. And I just pray that you receive me into heaven and uh, help me to deal with all the hardship and heartache and lack and sickness and, and uh, everything else. Defeat here on earth. And I believe you can still be saved. But God didn't save you. He didn't pay those pri- He didn't pay that price. Didn't allow that body to be broken so that you could remain sick and poor and beat up and, and defeated your whole life until you go to heaven. He didn't. Paul, everything we're going to read here, there's so much that Jesus talked about, so much that Paul and Peter write about that assure us of the victory here and now. If the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he will quicken your mortal body. What God the Father is inviting us into is salvation. And yes, salvation from hell. But not only that, he is inviting us into new life, new life that starts right now. Remember this old song? I'm not going to sing it. I'll just say the words. I've found a new way of living. I've found a new life divine. I've got the fruit of the Spirit abiding, abiding in the vine. Anybody remember this? Abiding in the vine, abiding in the vine. Love, joy, health, 
peace. He has made them mine. I've got prosperity, power, and victory abiding, abiding in the vine. And that's one of those old praise choruses. It wouldn't go over real well in today's modern praise services, but you know what? That's a great confession because it's all about the here and now. Doesn't mean that's all there is. Don't get me wrong. We're really messed up if all we're concentrating on is the here and now. Because heaven is definitely better than this and more important. But God has invited us into that kind of abundant life starting now. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.